Amen. Thanks so much to the band for leading us in worship this morning. Can we thank them? Uh, you guys, yeah, that's great. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open those to the second chapter of the book of Hebrews. We're walking through a series in that book entitled, Jesus is Better. And we are not uh, in- extremely creative. And here's why I can say that. At least with this series, there are few sermon series that you will find on the book of Hebrews where this is not in some way, shape, or form the title. Some of them have gone with Jesus is superior or Jesus is supreme, which sounds like a pizza. Uh, Others have chosen to call it Christ is better. We went with Jesus is better because we believe that he is. We trust that he is. We believe that he changes lives, that he wants to change your life, that he's changed my life, that, that who God is revealed to us in scripture He is fully made known to us in the person of Jesus. But when we look at the church that the writer of the book of Hebrews is addressing, he's dealing with some unique notions. Maybe you've never heard of some of these. Uh, These people had come to faith in Jesus, yet when they started to live out and practice what it meant to have faith in Jesus, it was hard. And they, in some ways, were wanting to turn away from that. Because following after Jesus, for many of these Jewish Christians, was more difficult than the sacrificial system. It was more difficult than all of the rituals and all the ceremonies. And as they sought to follow after Jesus, they noticed that those who they loved were falling away. These new believers, people who claimed belief in Jesus just like them, were falling away from the faith because when things get difficult, it applies a pressure to us where we have to decide, am I in this or am I not? So we deal with the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 1, sharing with us how good Jesus is as God's ultimate promise. Actually, chapter 1, the first five verses are called a Christ hymn. We sing of this Jesus. And when we get to chapter 2, the writer points out, as he looks at this early church, that he notices some things that are there that are problematic... And these things are not just problematic for a church full of Jewish Christians 2,000 years ago. These things are problematic for churches all over our country, all over Brazoria County, even here at 1027 Dixie Drive. So let's look together in Hebrews chapter 2. As I read these first four verses... Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. For it was not angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man? 
that we are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him you made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet now in putting everything in subjection under him he left nothing outside of his control at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him but we see him for who a little for a little while who was made lower than the angels namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it is written, for it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For who he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I tell you of your name and to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children and the children God has given to me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook in the same things that through the death of He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sons of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The entirety of Hebrews chapter 2 is really an address to what the church is and how the church functions. And we see that because it starts by telling this church in verse 1, we must pay close attention to what we have heard that we may not drift away from it. If you'll notice in your notes, we see that the, this passage is the first of the five warnings. And on the back of your worship guide, we go with the phrase, it's an intense caution. That God has cautioned us heavily as to what the church is to do when there is this danger of drifting. When we begin to move away from Christ as the anchor who holds us in place and keeps us from floating away from all that God would have us to be and all that God would have us to do as his people. We see this notion of drifting running throughout what Paul writes or the writer of the book of Hebrews says in the book. As you go through the the entirety of this book, this caution, this idea of drifting and moving away from the anchor that is Jesus is present. We Look at the word we. It's a really important one. Preachers use it all of the time. We include everyone in the room when we talk about what's taking place. So when we look at this text, we've got to ask ourselves, who is he writing to? When this person writes, and some believe that it's a sermon, I've had conversations about that, where someone simply took down notes. When he addresses the church that we see in the book of Hebrews... Who is the we? Because if we do not address who that we is, we have this theological divergence that can happen. When we read through this text, there are some who like to use it as a proof text to say that those who have a relationship with Jesus can lose their salvation. Because it seems, if you're not careful when you read through the book, that that might possibly take place. Others would argue until their dying day when they fulfill the end of their predestination 
And they stand before God for all of eternity. Now this passage is written to Christians. So what's he saying when he says this we? Who's he addressing? Who's he talking to? And what does who he's talking to matter to me? Your notes have that there are really three types of believers that we see. We have those of us who are believers. And if I'm going to give you a definition of what it means to, to be a believer, a true believer, as Stan Lee would say, Excelsior. This is hard. We look at every life, one of life's situations and we say, this is hard, but Jesus is good. And though there will be times when I drift, because all of us drift to some extent... I know that I'm going to get back to Jesus. Then there are the unbelievers. There's a great chance that for us in a room like this, there may be no one who is a professing unbeliever. Maybe you are. Maybe your friend tricked you into this parking lot today and promised you a chalupa when you leave. And these unbelievers are people who like... who like to sleep in and they know the Azels closes early on Sunday and they don't know why we do what we regularly do at 10.30 on a Sunday morning in Brazoria County in such bad weather. So I think that most of us when we address belief these are the two groups that come to mind. There are believers and there are unbelievers. There's a third group. That third group makes up lots of rooms like this. They're, they're the make-believers. They are people who at some point in their life have come to some understanding as to who Jesus is, yet he has never been the anchor that holds them. There are other anchors that they would attach themselves to. Maybe their grandmother and their grandfather walked them through good Bible stories and they thought, because I'm a good Baptist child, I will know this and I should understand these things, but there's been drift. These make-believers look at the concepts of faith and they find the value of what we believe in, but that value does not extend into the way that they live. It does not extend into their finances. It does not extend into their families. It's make-belief. Let's understand like this. This week, on Friday night, actually Thursday night, the 21st of the Marvel movies will come out. The Marvel Cinematic Universe. If you are unfamiliar with that, I would love to talk to you after the service before you go back underneath your rock. <clears throat> this is the longest sequence of sequels in the history of movies. When I go to the theater, I will look at a group of people and I do not know how they feel about these movies. There is an assumption that I can make. Because I walk into this theater, I will see all of these people in this in at the Brazos Mall where we're all sitting on the sticky chairs together. 150 of us filling seat by seat, row by row. And I would think when I looked at a room like that, everyone in this place must love Marvel movies. They must think these movies are the best. They've known what's taking place since Iron Man made his debut in 2008. They understand why we've had 17 different Incredible Hulks. They know everything about these movies. There is to know about these movies. They are in the popcorn. They've got their Coca-Cola. They love it. I would say that everyone in that theater cared about Marvel movies because they are part of the we. Now, they may not love the movie that we're going to see on Thursday night. From what I understand, there's a great possibility that you will. 
and some believe that you won't. But they know that that is part of something that is bigger and larger. And though they may have, they go to something that they don't love necessarily. They see that it's part of what they have been attached to that is greater for years. A better story. But, when I use the word we, I also have to realize that there are some people in that room who don't care about Marvel movies. There are some people in that room who do not understand why these Marvel movies happen. They enjoy the opportunity to spend time with their friends and eat gummy worms. I don't know why people eat gummy worms, but they do. They enjoy the idea of going to dinner afterwards. The movie is something that has nostalgic connection to them, yet when they leave, they could care less whether or not they go to the next Marvel movie on opening night. But they're part of the we because I don't know their hearts. When the writer of the book of Hebrews talks about we, that's what he's saying. Drifting can affect all of us, but for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we believe that we eventually drift back. The, the big theological phrase that we use is we persevere because we're the saints of God. But, if I'm just being honest with you, I've got people in rooms like this every Sunday morning. In this room who may not really have an anchored relationship with Jesus. You have a make-believe relationship with Jesus. And there's a great chance that I offend you. And I, I just want you to know, when I say phrases like that, I, I say that because I don't mo- know a more loving thing than I can say to you. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, and you have placed your faith in the anchor that is mom and dad taught you this, and brothers and sisters do this, and this is what we do before we go to one of the multitude of Mexican restaurants that we have in South Brazoria County every Sunday morning, then let let me let you know this is a waste of your time. If your celebration of all that God is doing in a room like this comes down to nostalgia, nostalgia will send you to hell. The hope of God is that his people, the we here, would be anchored in something better, something more secure. The theologian, uh, there's one that I love, actually a lot. D.A. Carson's one of my favorites. He's Canadian, eh? And, And he says this about holiness and about drifting. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, toward prayer, toward obedience to Scripture, toward faith and delight in the Lord. Here's what we drift towards, he said. We drift toward compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and we call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. There's drift that can happen for any of us. All of the we who are here. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there should be an alertness that comes. An alertness that comes that we are drifting. And if we never have that alertness, if we're never drawn to that, And I would ask you to think, do I really have faith in this Jesus that the Bible talks about? 
And here's the setup that the writer of the book of Hebrews or the preacher of this sermon to the people at Hebrews says, if God did this in the past, how do you not see it as better in the way that he's doing it in Jesus? Because that's their whole thing. They would look at what the writer was saying. They would look at the nature of Jesus and they would say, but that's taking me away from everything that I've ever known. And he sets up this lesser, greater comparison. Go with me to verse 2. For since the message declared to the, by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will, God accomplished in the Old Testament, His accomplishments there are less than what He will do through the person of Jesus in the New. Here are some of the anchors of Judaism. They're anchors that you're familiar with. We've learned them from singing vegetables. Israel was delivered by Moses. That was a great sign of God. Can I just get an agreement? Yes, that's cool. We love that. But that is pointing to a better sign that we will be delivered not from Egypt by Moses, but from sin and death by Jesus. Zechariah chapter 3, the angel of the Lord removes Zechariah's sins and he points out the day of Yom Kippur that we'll talk about a little later. Congratulations. And when he points to this, he's saying what you do every year on the day of atonement is actually telling us about a better day. When your sins will be taken away in a single day, when God will spread his arms on the cross. It's pointing us to that. What about us? What are some of the anchors to faith that we attach ourselves to that in effect cause us to inadvertently miss Jesus? All of this comes down to this. It comes down to us seeing what God did and missing why God happened to do it. Seeing what God does and missing why God does it. When God heals a sick friend because God heals people, We believe that. The Bible teaches that. From a terrible illness, we as believers should see that God is doing a bigger work and that he is saying that Jesus provides ultimate healing. When we miss one for the other, we've missed God's intent. When God doesn't heal, because there are times in his providence where he does not. But he sustains us through whatever that happens to be through hardship or sickness, it is pointing to this, the truth that Jesus sustains us not only through temporary hardship in life, but eternal hardship in this broken world where we will eventually be void of sin altogether. When we celebrate the life of a new baby, and we do that here at Grace Bible all of the time. You people have so many babies. Our attendance grows and our tithers do not. God is showing us just a glimpse of the new life provided for us in Jesus. This is all pointing to Jesus. Let's not anchor ourselves in lesser things when there is a greater thing that they're pointing us to. What makes this Jesus so fantastic? 
How do we see him as this better anchor? He's a better anchor because we see in these next few verses that he's an invested king. You have that in your notes. 5 through 9 show us that. I'm going to read it over us again. Verse 5. For it was not angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It wasn't angels. What was it? It was people. God has subjected the world to human beings. Now... We see this, that we are made higher than the angels and the world is under our control. That's what it's saying. It's supposed to happen. Verse 6, it's been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him? So God would say, I I trust you. Which is very shocking because I don't always trust me. Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything. Here this in verse 8. He has put everything in subjection underneath our feet. Wait. It's it's creation under our feet right now. Do I get to tell creation what it should do and why it should do it? No. Goodness no. If so, I would tame tigers and I would eat all the pizza that I want without gaining any weight. And I would never look at a vegetable again. And I would make it stop raining. I would do all of these things. It's not under my feet right now. It's not under my feet because of what sin is and how sin has made itself such a horrendous. It's made its presence so horrendously known in my life and in yours too. But God is taking us somewhere. This all takes place that it's not under our feet because of Adam's fall. You've heard of Adam. Adam, Eve, nudity, fig leaves. It was weird. But God has put everything under him. He left nothing outside of his control. At present, we don't see yet everything is in subjection to him, right? Everything does not seem to be as if it is under subjection to man. But, we see that God's original intent and his ultimate intent come together in Jesus. Verse 9. We see Jesus is an invested king. We see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels. Just like us. Namely Jesus, just in case you missed it. Crowned him with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of his death. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In Jesus, God corrects what sin has broken. God makes right what sin has wronged. And those of us who are in Jesus can trust that He is falling and drifting because when we hold on to Him as His people, He helps us to see that God loves and cares for us and has an ultimate intent and purpose for us. In Jesus, we have an invested king because he did not simply risk his life. Sin, my sin, cost Christ his life. So that I could be what God has intended for me to be. A person who is in right relationship with him. We also see this, in Jesus we have the son and he is not ashamed of you. We all have that family member, am I right? That family member that we're like, oh, that's the one. 
The family member that you avoid at Christmas because they want to talk about politics. You don't have those? The crazy Uncle Ned. You've all got crazy Uncle Ned. You may not call him Ned. Maybe he, he's an auntie. I don't know what's happening at your house. But we all have people because of their behavior that we just kind of turn our head down. There are family members who comment on every picture on Facebook and those comments have nothing to do with anything. If you're that person, we can walk through that. We'll have a small group discussion guide for you. For you. If anyone has the right to be ashamed of me, it's Jesus. But he's not. Because he sees the sin and the depth of, of my fallenness. Verse 10. For it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, is bringing many sons to glory. He's giving you an anchor. That he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Why? Because by making us perfect through suffering, that means that suffering for us is not eternal. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus calls you a brother. I will tell you of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So for every one of us who is in Christ Jesus, who look at the mess that is our lives, the mistakes that we make, the poor decisions that we continually cannot get over. Jesus died for those sins. And your sins are not causing you to be someone that Jesus says, I just don't know if I can deal with that. He dealt with it all. He dealt with it all. And for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, he is not ashamed of you. And for those of you outside of him, he's inviting you to be part of this. Again, I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children of God has given me. I and the children God has given me. Not only do we see that we have a son, that the son is not ashamed. We see this, the crushed is the conqueror in verses 14 and 15. And this is not how anything's supposed to work. I have never watched a basketball game. And contrary to the nerdy illustration that I started with, I watched lots of sports. I have never watched a basketball game where at the end of the game, a person stands who has lost by 27 points and says, Man, I played my best game ever. I killed it today. When James Harden shoots 47 free throws next week and they lose, he will never... Be someone he, he sees the shame of losing, but Jesus, when we look at what took place on the cross, everything said that's a loss. Everything says that's a loss. Yet in that, the crushed, crushed on your behalf, crushed in my place, conquerors, conquerors. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus, in his death, conquered yours. In his death, crushed yours. And the things that you carry, and the things that I carry, that 
are tying us to lesser things. Jesus said, don't forget who I am. This is not winning. I win. He always wins. For surely it is not angels that he helps. Look at that. Angels. Angels are awesome. Have you seen angels? And not just the ones on your toilet paper. Have you ever seen depictions of angels? They're fantastic beings. They play instruments like jazz. (laughs) They're these amazing creations of God. But God doesn't help them. He helps you. You've been placed higher than the angels in the sight of God. They're meant to serve you and me. You mean more than angels. Think about the people who are around you. They mean more to God than angels do. You're looking at me like, are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. For surely it is not angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. The crush became the conqueror. Finally, we see this in verses 16 through 18. The priest, he is our propitiation. That's a $20 word. Let's make change. Propitiation is the idea of your sin being atoned for. And for that sin to be atoned change, for the Jewish people, that exchange took place every year at an event called Yom Kippur. They would walk in with their sheep and their goats and they would go to the great high priest and the great high priest would go through a process and that process was pretty intricate, so intricate that I don't have it memorized and I do not have a way to uh, use slang to communicate it. So let me read to you from uh, some of the commentaries that I worked through. There were two features that distinguished this day of worship. First, it was the one day of the year that the high priest, and only the high priest, he entered the most holy place, the holy of holies. We've heard of that if we've spent any time in the Old Testament. Of the tent of meeting, where he presented sacrificial blood as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of Israel and the purification of the tent of meeting. Inside the most holy place was this Ark of the Covenant. It's a big deal in the Bible. It's such a big deal that when a guy tried to grab it so it would not break on the ground, God killed him. That represented the resident presence of God. The high priest sprinkled blood on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. The sacrificed animal. Achieving the forgiveness of sins for the priest and the congregation. Next, the high priest would sprinkle blood in the outer room of the tent. The blood decontaminated the ceremonial impurities accumulated by the sin and the ceremonial uncleanliness committed for the year. The purification of the tent of meeting was national in scope, giving a comprehensive purging of impurity and sin. So sin is such a big deal that every year everyone comes together and they put everything they can, their trust, in the great high priest to deal with it through the sacrifice of animals. He goes through a process where he's bathed multiple times. He's bathed in public too. There's a thin veil between him and the audience who have gathered from all over to watch him offer up sacrifices for their sins. They gather together because this great high priest is a really big deal. He is their champion. He is their understanding of what a champion should be. If anyone can represent them before God, it is him. This great high priest offers up these sacrifices. But he doesn't do it fully. 
There are various other minor sacrifices that he has to make through the year. Next year at Yom Kippur, 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 that's like a baseball player. Yom Kippur, he's going to have to go through this multiple leveled sacrificial system again. Jesus, he's the high priest. He's the high priest who offers up our sacrifices. But he doesn't just offer up the sacrifices of animals that people have brought to him because those sacrifices carried, carried the weight and the sin and the contamination of the people who brought them. Their best offering wasn't great. We see that in the book of Zechariah. These were just symbols of what God was going to do. You offer up your best, but your best isn't the best. So Jesus, as the great high priest, he doesn't just offer propitiation, he becomes the propitiation. Jesus, in our place, the, the splattering of blood there is not the splattering of bulls and goats, it's his splattering of his blood. But there's a third animal in the process that no one ever talks about, especially Baptists. I'm Baptist-ish. The third animal is the scapegoat. The scapegoat shows up. It's there. And after all these sacrifices have been made, there is one goat that is released to carry away the sins of all the people. Jesus is not only our great high priest who offers up the sacrifice. Jesus is not simply the sacrificial system, the, the animal that will be sacrificed in our place. Jesus takes away the sins that we bear. So why do we keep gathering in rooms like this where it looks like we can't do anything to get rid of those things? Jesus takes our sins away. And Jesus is saying, this writer of Hebrews, this preacher of the sermon, is saying to these people who keep wanting to go back and reattach themselves to all their ritual and all their tradition, do you really want to go back to that? Do you really want to go back to these yearly sacrifices? Do you really want to go back to having to find that animal and drag your kids across the Middle East? Is that really what you want to do? And for every one of us who vainly low-key do the same thing. I just want to ask, why? Why? Why can't we trust Jesus to be this champion who crushed sin in our place? As the brother who is not ashamed of us. As the priest who is everything that we need to stand as right with God. But this preacher preaches... This writer writes and he deals with people who still seem unconcerned. Preaching's weird. I, I, it reminds me almost of the flight attendant. You ever been on a plane? Anybody been on a plane? Just me. You get on there and there's a lady in front of you and before the plane takes off she does the Macarena to explain to you everything that needs to happen. That's what this can feel like. But I'm also the flight attendant who sits in the seat and hears sermons. I look at my own life and say, 
I'm just looking at my phone too. Jesus bore our sin. He carried our sin away. He has offered up himself, not animals. So to see that the God of the Bible really does love us. And we can anchor ourselves in him. So let me just give you some practical steps to walk out of this with because I don't want us to ever leave so high in the sky that we miss there's practicality to this. How can I measure in some way if I'm drifting or if I've never had an anchor to begin with? I can look and I can see that I never want to fight the fight to read my Bible. That's an anchor for us. Believers in Jesus should want to spend time in their Bible. But it's hard. You know what's not hard? Me knowing basketball statistics. Because I can... Me knowing when movies are going to be released. But it's hard to lock myself in. That lets us know that if we have drifted a bit. Atonement does not matter to me. I'm not moved by the work of Jesus in my place and in my life. We're in danger of drifting when we see that prayer is not important to us. We are in danger of drifting when lost people are not important. So I don't know your heart. I don't know if you're a true believer. I don't know if you're an unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever, glad you're here. I don't know if you're a make-believer. I'm glad you're here too. But I would hope that we would continue to come back to Christ as our steady anchor who holds us firm. And that when our hearts drift from Him, we would fight and battle and wrestle and war so that we would know who holds us secure because He knows us. Just you bow your heads with me this morning? At the end of our services, I'm typically in one of the back corners of our room. I'll be at the back right corner, my right hand side today. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I want you to know that we would love to walk through that with you. Prayers don't save people. Jesus does. Believe that. But I'm going to give you just some guides. If you're here and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, a simple conversation with the Lord that goes a little bit like this. Jesus, I need you. I need you. I need you because my sin leads to death and, and I see that I've kind of I'm not anywhere near you. But Jesus you offer life. You, more than tradition, more than everything else, you are life. You have died so I could have life. So Jesus, I'm going to give you my sin. You deal with it. Because I can't. And I'll take the life that you offer in exchange. I want to trust in you. If that's you, if you prayed that or something to that effect, you don't have to say the words that I say. And you would like to follow up about that, I'm in the back corner. I would love to talk to you at the end of our service to pray over you. To help you process what God's doing in your heart. Because I believe the Bible teaches that we place our faith in Jesus. We, we set Him as our anchor. 
because he's spoken to us from creation. He's spoken to us through the law. He's spoken to us through everything. He keeps speaking, come to me because I'm better. So if you need me, I'm in the back corner. If you placed your faith in Jesus for the first time this morning, I'm in the back corner. If you're a believer in this room and you're like, hey, I just drift all of the time. Join the club. But before you stand and start singing, because that's what you're typically accustomed to in worship services like this, could you just do some work with the Lord? Just ask Him, God, give me desires that I don't have. Make me crave Your Word. Make me love lost people. Make me care for the church. God is good to us, and He will answer your prayers. To fight, you're not drifting towards this. It's a fight that we fight. You are good, Jesus, and you do good things. And we acknowledge you this morning. In the heaviness and weight of this room, we acknowledge you. If you need me, I'm back here.